Mark 15, 40 through 47. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, the younger of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So uh, happy Palm Sunday. For those of you that know, uh, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, typically what churches will do is they'll, is they'll, preach, a, um, they'll, they'll, they'll preach a message about uh, Palm Sunday, the, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. A week before the resurrection, when Jesus rode into uh, Jerusalem uh, to prepare to die on the cross in our place and for our sins. And, um, and we won't have a traditional Palm Sunday message for us this morning because uh, since we're going through the Gospel of Mark and we're wrapping up the Gospel of Mark, we really just preached on uh, the Palm Sunday historic event uh, not too long ago. But the spirit of Palm Sunday, and the reason that we usually preach on it, uh, is because it's a, it's, a, it's a day of anticipation. It's a day of longing. It's a day of saying, here comes Jesus to uh, accomplish, to do what it is that he set out to do. To die on the cross and to rise from the grave. And so in that sense... This, this morning's sermon in Mark 15 is very much in the spirit of Palm Sunday. It's very much in the spirit of, of Palm Sunday because so far we've taken a long look at Jesus over this last year, the life that he lived, the people that he loved and served, uh, the lessons on God's kingdom that he taught, his betrayal and his death on the cross. And today we discuss his burial, the time, the moment, the day that he was buried. And I mean, what, 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 what event could have more, uh, more sort of uh, uh, ethos of, of longing than his burial? We discuss his burial today, and the next week on Easter Sunday, we're going to actually look at the resurrection in Mark 16, and then we're done. How many of you guys are going to miss going through the Gospel of Mark? I really have just like loved going through this book over this last year. And you might be thinking right now, like, well, why are we, why, why do that today? Why not do just another Palm Sunday message? Why spend a whole sermon talking about the burial of Jesus's body? Like, is, is the actual burial really that important? To answer that question, I want you to take a look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, uh, which is actually the first text I ever preached on here at King's Cross Church uh, on our soft launch at Easter a couple years ago. 
but 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4 really sums up uh, the, the gospel message, which is at the core center of all Christianity. And in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, it says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So what does Paul consider of first importance? He says this message, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was, what does it say? Buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now notice he doesn't just say Jesus died and then he was raised, right? Paul makes sure to mention that Jesus was buried before he was raised. This isn't just a mundane fact of the narrative, right? Which a lot of times when, when people are preaching through the gospel accounts, they'll preach on the burial as either uh, as, as like an, uh, an, an epilogue to the death of Jesus, or they'll preach on the burial as like a prologue before the resurrection of Jesus, but we see here, and the reason we're spending just time on the burial is because it's crucial. The burial of Jesus is crucial because it confronts us. It, it smacks us in the face and it confronts us with the reality that Jesus wasn't just mocked and insulted. He wasn't just, <coughs> he didn't just suffer. He wasn't just wounded and flogged. He was killed. In every sense of that word, he experienced death itself. <clears throat> and on the other side of his death, we know there's new beginning. On the other side of death, there's new life. On this side, you've got, you've got babies crying, you've got suffering. And on the other side, right, we have evil is done for. We've got new life. But this morning, our text confronts us with the fact that Jesus is really dead at this point in human history. And so I want us to look at, at, at three points surrounding his burial. First, his burial as just proof of his death. Uh, secondly, his burial as a connecting point for his community. And lastly, his burial as a prelude to resurrection life. So first, his burial as proof of his death. Let's start in verse 42. In verse 42, it says, When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, and by the way, this is the council that had Jesus killed. So apparently, that council, that council of elders had some secret followers of Jesus. And this guy, Joseph, is one of them. Joseph of Arimathea, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He asked for the dead, lifeless body of Jesus. I want that verse to sink in for you. You see, Jesus really is dead at this point. The Bible talks about how death has a sting. It's a metaphor that gives us a sense of just the harshness and the pain that death can cause us. How many of us have lost a loved one, a 
close friend or a family member to where you, 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 you understand that metaphor of when the Bible says that death is, is, has a sting. A distant cousin of ours just passed away this, this last week. Uh, cousin, uh, 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 we're close to, to her family growing up in Long Beach. And we're going to her funeral this Tuesday morning. If you've ever been to a funeral, you know that it's like it's one thing to get news that a loved one passed away. Like I did, I found out on Facebook. It's one thing to get news that a loved one has died, but it's something else entirely to see their dead body of a loved one, to watch them get lowered into the ground. You see, Joseph of Arimathea, he asked for the body of Jesus. And Jesus at this point, like, he's, he's, he's dead. His body is lifeless. And I want you to notice where his original disciples are at this point. His original disciples are all gone. Right? Like today we spend thousands to honor our loved ones. Like when someone close to us passes away, we, we, we have sometimes a, a, a viewing service. We have a memorial service. Then we have the actual burial, the funeral, where we lay them into the ground like, like where I'm going on Tuesday. The caskets are often made of the most expensive material they're lined with the finest sink or silk cloth. And, and when a prominent or influential person dies, like someone who's widely celebrated in the culture, uh, especially like politically or militarily, uh, we, we lower uh, the flag to half staff in their honor. Or in a stadium, they might pause for a moment of silence. I mean, at, at the Grammys recently, not too long ago, you may have noticed that you know, when they show the, that in memoriam segment, Right where they start flashing the names and pictures of all these musicians who've passed away since the last Grammys, since the last awards show. And this year, there was like this segment of people on social media that were in uproar. They were super ticked off because they didn't honor their favorite musicians. They didn't, they didn't honor like Vinnie Paul or, or, or Pete Shelley. And, and, and people were like all mad about that and, and going on social media talking about it. And why the uproar? Why do, we, why do we do all this? Why all the fanfare and, 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 and celebration of life and also mourning of death when someone passes away? It's because there's something in us. There's something inside every person that just screams that death is not right in this world. It stings. It shouldn't be. And so we honor the dignified lives of the people that death has yanked from us. And we see here that that, that sort of honor didn't happen to those who died of crucifixion. Didn't happen to, to those who were executed on a cross. Instead of a casket, the Romans would just leave the beaten and bloodied body up there to hang on a cross for days to rot. Ravens and scavenger dogs would pick at the body, and anything that was left over of the person would just be cast by the Romans into this place called Hinnom, this giant dung heap. That's why this man named Joseph, this man who was a secret follower of Jesus, 
That's why this man musters up the courage to approach Pilate, the one who sent Jesus to the cross, and ask if he could take Jesus' body. What you need to know about Joseph of Arimathea is that he's a member of the Council of Elders. So again, this is the very group that put Jesus on trial and condemned here. We know he's a secret, he's been a secret follower of Jesus all along. It says in our verse that he longed for the kingdom of God. That means tells us that he loved when Jesus would preach on, on the kingdom. When all the crowds would gather and his colleagues were jeering and criticizing and hating on Jesus from the corner, Joseph of Arimathea was listening in and saying, Man, I like what he's saying. I long for that kingdom that Jesus is preaching about. He, he started growing this, this secret uh, affection and admiration for Jesus and his teaching. I want you to imagine him being there in, in a room like that, listening to Jesus teach, longing for the kingdom that Jesus preached for. And so there's no doubt that at this moment, Joseph was probably shocked and heartbroken by the reality of Jesus' death. I mean, he's thinking at this point, Hey, maybe Jesus isn't, isn't the Messiah or the Christ that I, I thought he was. But he still has enough admiration for Jesus. He still has enough love for Jesus that he wants to give him a proper burial. And so he steps forward. He approaches Pilate and he says, look, well, Jesus has nowhere for his body to be laid. So can I, can I take it? Can I take his body? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him my family's too. Remember, he's a well-known man, this, this verse tells us. He was a prominent man. He was a well-known man. He was affluent. He was educated. He was powerful. And so it must have taken a lot of courage for someone like that to ask for Jesus' body. As a secret follower of Jesus, a man like him who stood on that council wouldn't want anyone to know that he was a follower of Jesus, a sympathizer of Jesus. And when all of a sudden, when it's the most dangerous, when the man Jesus has been executed on a cross, <coughs> found guilty for high treason, at that moment, something inside Joseph wells up and he's like, you know, I don't care at this point. I don't care if I get outed as a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk that because I want to give this man a proper burial. Read verse 44 with me. At this point, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he, Jesus, should have already died. And so summoning the centurion, the executioner, he asked him whether he was already dead. When Pilate learned from the centurion that he was dead, Jesus was, in fact, dead. He granted the corpse to Joseph. That's how the body of Jesus is described, a corpse. I want you to imagine what it must have been like for Joseph to go now with the centurion to the, the place where Jesus' lifeless body, where Jesus' corpse was hanging on a cross. I want you to try to imagine what it must have been like for this man 
This secret follower of Jesus who's outing himself because of his love for Jesus, his desire to honor him. I want you to imagine how emotionally overwhelming it must have been for him to walk up to the cross and see Jesus's corpse hanging there. What likely happened is a soldier would lean a ladder up against the cross while, while another soldier would climb up to retrieve his just lifeless body. And then Joseph would, 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 would help them, them pry the five-inch nails out of his hands and toss those nails to the side until they would pierce the next guy. The body would be lowered down from the cross. And once his body is on the ground, Joseph of Arimathea may have knelt down on the ground, cradling Jesus in his arms. The ground, by the way, historians would describe the scene of crucifixions like this. The ground, by the way, would just be drenched in blood at this point, stained in crimson. I want you to think of how traumatic it must have been for for Joseph to be kneeling in that with Jesus' body in his arms. To think of how traumatic it must have been for him to pull the crown of thorns that has been embedded into into Jesus' brow, into his skull. (laughs) If you've ever had to like, uh, if you've ever had to pull a splinter out of a child's foot, or hand, you know how tedious it can be to make sure you get every little little piece out. You know how slowly and carefully you have to, to work at it. And I want you to imagine what's going on in his heart when this is all happening. What's going on in, in his mind as he, as he scans Jesus' body that's laying in front of him. As he holds Jesus' head, who's, and his, his hair is probably matted down in sweat and dried blood and dirt. And the question probably entered Joseph's mind, could this have really been the Messiah? How did this happen? He's, they're, they're probably thinking about all the, all the things that they witnessed him do, all the things they heard him say, and here he is, his lifeless body just in Joseph's arms. And when he pulled those nails out of Jesus' hands, as, as, as the, 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 the blood just, just streaked across the nail as, they, as he pried it out, he probably thought, you know, these were the hands that healed many people. These were the hands that helped countless people, and now they're pierced. And when he looked at Jesus' lips, these lips that spoke of hope and truth and love and the kingdom that Joseph has grown to long for, these lips are now dry and broken and cracked. And when Joseph noticed Jesus' back, which was torn to shreds from all the, the scourging and the flogging from the metal and bone, ripping pieces of flesh off of Jesus' back, I like to think he, he imagined looking at how he used to look at that same back when Jesus would, would, would visit the town and walk away into the horizon and, and, and disappear into the horizon after teaching in their, in, in their area for days. Looking at his knees that were bruised, 
how his knees were these knees that retreated to pray, where he knelt and prayed for others, where he knelt to wash his disciples' feet. And now they're bruised and battered and all torn up. A corpse. That's what the body of Jesus is. A corpse. Crucified corpse. I want you to to see now what Joseph does with the body in verse 46. It says, Joseph now, he, he bought a linen shroud. And taking him down, taking Jesus down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, which is a burial custom of theirs to, to wrap a dead body into, into fine cloth with spices and, and linens because people would be visiting this, this tomb for days on end. And so uh, they wanted it to, to look nice. They wanted the body to be decorated. They wanted it to, 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 to smell okay. And so they put spices and all that stuff in there. It says, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And if we didn't know how the story would continue, this kind of feels like a final moment, doesn't it? Just the finality of the tomb. I want us to sit in that this morning. You see, a tomb like this that Joseph put Jesus' body in would be like the size of a large walk-in closet. So it's like bigger than some of the tombs that like we have uh, today, but it's definitely not like pyramid in Egypt sized tomb, right? This is a large walk-in closet. The entrance is only a few feet high. Other gospels would tell us how the disciples would have to like bend down to, to crawl into the space to get into the tomb. It was only a few feet high and it was sealed with a large stone. Basically like this giant disc that would be rolled into place. And the way that these tombs were designed is that the groove in the tomb would slope down so that it's easier to close the tomb than it is to open it. Now if the story ended here, then Christians today and Christians throughout history would be considered the biggest fools in the world. Right? That's just not my assessment. That's the Bible's assessment. And then elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that if the resurrection never happens, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Because we're just wasting our time. We're wasting our passion. We're wasting our energy. We're wasting our minds. If the resurrection never happens, we're wasting our resources. It doesn't matter how he died or why he died if he remained dead, if the tomb remained closed. It doesn't matter who was involved or what they felt if his body stayed in the tomb. But everything that we've seen so far is only important because he didn't stay in the tomb. He did rise, conquering all evil, sin, and death. And if Jesus really died and he really was buried, then his resurrection really proves that he's the Son of God. If he really did die, then his victory over death is a real victory that can be ours by faith. Now, of course, as you guess, we'll probably talk more about that next week. But for now, I want you to feel the weight of this moment. 
his lifeless body, his corpse of a body. I want you to reckon with the reality that Jesus' body is a corpse, that he really is dead in the flesh. Number two, I want us to see now how his burial is a connecting point for his community. His burial is a connecting point for his community. Now go back to verse 40. A couple verses early. Verse 40, this is right after Jesus dies and takes his last breath. When the centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. In verse 40, it says, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. Now, who are these women? It tells us in verse 41 that when he, Jesus, was in Galilee, or, or sorry, Galilee, these women followed him and they, they ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the first time that we're hearing about the woman followers of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The first time we're hearing about these particular women. And so we see from verse 41 that these women are important, but they also represent all these other women that we didn't hear about prior to this. Now, the author wants us to know that these three have been with Jesus since Galilee, which is fascinating because that's long before the journey to Jerusalem where Jesus is betrayed, slaughtered, and eventually killed. And now what we learn is that through all of that, through his journeys, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, which we'll read about next week, the only followers of Jesus who actually stuck around, who actually stuck with him through all of those are the woman followers, are his female followers. They're mentioned again in verse 47. It says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Next week, you'll notice that these women are also the first ones to see and hear that Jesus is risen. All the men have disappeared. All the men have abandoned him at this point, but the women are still here. Now, why does any of this matter? What you need to know First, is that in ancient Roman and Jewish cultures at the time, a woman's testimony was not seen as trustworthy in a court of law, which is totally sexist and totally wrong, in case you didn't know. But that's what makes their names actually being listed here so fascinating. He mentions at least two of these women's names three times in the span of just several, several verses. And if you remember in the Gospel of Mark, that's Mark's way of saying, hey, look, don't take my word for it. Look these people up. Look up Mary who lives in Magdala. Look up uh, the other Mary who, who's, who's the, the, the mother of James and Joseph. Find Salome. And so on the one hand, the fact that the women were the only ones that are stuck around and the fact that the women are actually named and, and that you're invited to, to, to look them up if you're around in the first century proves the veracity of this story in some sense. 
You see, because early Christian writers and preachers, if they were just kind of making up this mythology, they would have preferred to have men be the first witnesses. They would have never made up a story like this with women recorded as the first witnesses to Jesus' burial and resurrection. They would have never written the story like that unless it really happened that way. Unless the women were really there. Mark mentions their name as a way of adding a footnote to egg on the skeptics at the time, saying, look them up, find them, ask them about this. They were there. And the other reason this is significant is that the mention of these women in the Gospel of Mark at this point highlights really the uniqueness and the counterculturalness of of Jesus' community. You see, the way Mark sandwiches the narrative of Joseph of Arimathea in between the narrative of these women tells us that these verses go together. If you've been with us, you know that that, that, that this is something that Mark does when he kind of sandwiches one story and another to show you it goes together. How many of you guys have ever had a Vitz, this, what's it called? Vitz, what's this called, Ruth? The, the, the ice cream sandwich? Yeah. The It's It bar. Did I say that right? Have you ever just had that before? Okay, so they, they, they introduced this to us like a few years ago, and like our lives have never been the same. So basically you have uh, uh, like oatmeal raisin cookies, which you're thinking like oatmeal raisin cookies. Who, who, who likes those, right? Who likes oatmeal cookies? Um, but here's what you do. You put ice cream in between them, and you dip the whole thing in chocolate. It's called a, a It's It bar. Yeah, and, and it, I mean, you, you can buy them at like almost any grocery store. It's like one of the oldest ice cream sandwiches, and it, it's just magical, right? It's like you just never understand, like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with this oatmeal cookie? Like, that's what you do with it, right? And when it's together, it makes so much more sense, right? It belongs together. Mark does that. <laughs> right? Mark does that time and time again in the Gospel of Mark. He has these stories where it's like he introduces one narrative and then he seems to break from that. He talks about something else and then he brings it back on the other end and finishes the original story. And you're like, why is he all over the place? Is he ADD? Maybe. But it's also a literary device that they used back then. And Mark loves this literary device so much that his historians, not even Christian historians, used to call this at their own time like a Markin sandwich because of the way that Mark would do this. And so, and so what we see here is that the way that he sandwiches the narrative of Joseph between the narrative of these women tells us that this all goes together. And when you look at, take a step back and look at all these verses together, what you see is that this collection of verses shows us how the cross brings people together who otherwise would not make any sense together. You have the women who are normally marginalized by the insiders, and they're there. You have the centurion, which we saw last week, who was a Roman insider, but an outsider to God's people. He hated God's law. He was a total pagan, and yet he's there. You have Joseph of Arimathea. Other gospel accounts tell us that Joseph is with Nicodemus, another Pharisee, another secret follower of Jesus that sat on the council. Two that are told, two guys that are totally religious insiders uh, with with God's elite religious people. They're men. They're they're people of privilege and of power. They're aristocrats, and yet they're here in this text too. And so you have both people on the outer circle 
You have people on the inner ring. And yet here in Mark 15, we see all of them responding in some sense in faith to Jesus together. They're all being changed by him. Every one of them. The centurion who helped murder Jesus starts telling people the message that Christ is the son of God. His understanding of who Jesus is has changed. The women who were once ignored but are now given a prominent role as witnesses to Jesus' burial and resurrection, their understanding of their value and identity in God is changed. The council members who were once too afraid, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they're too afraid to go in public with their faith. They risk their power. They risk their reputation in order to show compassion to Jesus and bury his body. You see, their understanding of power and privilege changed. They brought themselves low for him. You see, the death and burial of Jesus has become a connecting point for the community of Jesus. It's true for them in the first century, and it's true for us today, too. I mean, the church is filled with people today who would otherwise, apart from the gospel, would never give each other the time of day. In this room alone, we've got people of all kinds of stripes, right? I mean, we've got old, we've got young, we've got single people, we've got married people, we have people with kids, people with no kids, we have people who just graduated college, we have people who just became empty nesters, who are retiring, we have white collar people, blue collar people, we have conservatives, we have liberals, we even have libertarians. The church of Jesus is represented by all kinds of different people. Different ethnicities, different personalities, different tastes, different political parties, different religious upbringings. We have different skills and different gifts that we bring to the table for serving. We're distinct from one another for sure. We look different and we sound different. But the church isn't about uniformity. It's not about looking the same or sounding the same. It's not about uniformity, but it is about unity. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then we have this unbreakable unity that comes with being brothers and sisters in the same spiritual family. We have an unbreakable unity that comes with being brothers and sisters in God's family. Although every follower of Jesus does have a personal relationship with God, that relationship is not isolated. That relationship should not be isolated. The Christian faith is not intended to be lived in private. We were created for a community. We were created for a spiritual community. We were created to belong to a local church family, a spiritual family. And the cross of Jesus reconciles us to that truth. It not only reconciles us back to God, but it reconciles us to each other. So the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried in, our, in his death and rose from the grave to adopt us into God's family. That gospel gives us new hearts and new minds, but it also creates for us a new community. You see, the church isn't just some place that we go to or attend. It's a people, a family to whom we belong. This is the type of community that we were made for. Where Jesus is our center, 
And his life, death, burial, resurrection is the foundation on which we stand. D.A. Carson, a contemporary scholar on uh, the New Testament, he says this. He says, what binds us Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. We are a band of natural enemies turned into friends who love one another for Jesus' sake. Amen? See, the burial of Jesus, it's, it's a connecting point for his community. He died for me. He died for you. He died for us. Leads us to our third point. I want us to see now how his burial is a prelude to resurrection life. His burial is a prelude to resurrection life. If Jesus is really dead, then he must be buried. And the fact that he was beaten, flogged, pierced, dragged, wrapped in linen and spices and buried tells us that he was dead in the truest and fullest sense of that word. The burial of Jesus also serves as a prelude, a preparation, a platform for the resurrection. It tells us that the resurrection will be a resurrection in the truest and fullest sense of that word. You see, our passage ends with the words, it says in verse 46, he rolled a stone, Joseph rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They were witnesses from afar. You see, these words right here, they kind of have this feeling of eager impatience, right? You just read these words and you're like, yeah, but what, what happens now? What, what's next? The stage is set for the next scene, for the resurrection. But for now, the day after Good Friday is the Sabbath day and everything must rest, including the body of Jesus himself. It's like a yawn in time between the nightmare of Good Friday and the rising on Sunday. And so we sit now with eager anticipation at this point for Easter Sunday. And in the meantime, as we're sitting there, I want us to marvel at how the death of Jesus really just unites us at the foot of the cross. I want us to find encouragement from Joseph of Arimathea that, that faithful obedience is, is never wasted. I mean, this guy laid it all on the line. He risked it all to show compassion for Jesus. At this point, he didn't know Jesus was going to rise. No one did. No one did. But we know he will. And we know that their honoring of him, their faith in him, even when it didn't make sense, would be vindicated, would not be wasted. I mean, how many of you have ever been in this place where you feel like faithful obedience to the Lord, faithful obedience to the church, faithful obedience to God and his people just, just doesn't make sense? It seems hard. It seems like you're wasting time. 
let's find encouragement from Joseph that faithful obedience is never wasted. And let's also marvel at how the burial of Jesus confirms that his final payment for human sin on the cross is not pending but approved. It is finished, he said. And the, the burial in the tomb proves that. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.